listening to The Big Album Show with Paul Dillon and Dan O'Neill. Hello and welcome to The Big Album Show. I'm Dan. And I'm Paul. It was the year that soccer hooligans rioted in Lansdowne Road. Jack Charlton retired and Ireland voted to allow divorce. That same year, Whipping Boy released their stunning album Heartworm. Recorded between September and November 1994 in Will Mill Lane, the album included tracks such as Twinkle, When We Were Young and We Don't Need Nobody Else. It's an album held in high regard by many real music fans and new generations have discovered it through the years since its release. As a record, it's emotional, it's powerful, it's timeless, and it's about to be reissued on double vinyl and CD featuring a number of B-sides and demos. Whipping Boy consisted of Fergal McKee on lead vocals, Paul Page on guitar, Miles McDonnell on bass, and Colm Hassett on drums. Today, we're absolutely thrilled to have Whipping Boy guitarist Paul Page on the show. How's it going, Paul? Thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. Hi, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Paul, you're very, very welcome onto the Big Album Show. And it, it is it has to be said, this album for music fans uh, is a thing of legend. And it's held... Uh, so close to the hearts of so many music fans. And one of the reasons I know that is because I'm one of these people who started hunting out CDs in secondhand stores at the time when everybody started giving their CDs to secondhand stores, right? And the 90s, all those 90s albums were there. Spice Girls, Oasis, Blur, U2. I never once saw a secondhand copy of Heartworm available in a secondhand record store because I think the fans of this album get it and they keep it and they return to it again and again and again. Why, if you look back at that, you know, when you were making this record, were you aware of the good thing that you were onto and how big this album was going to become for you? I suppose... No, the short answer to that is no. I mean, we knew we had a bunch of really good songs and, you know, we knew we had the bones of a very good album. But if you had said to me back then, in 25 years time, people would still be listening, still be talking about the record. I probably would have said you're you're mad. You know, it's it's just it's one of those great mysteries as to how the album has, I suppose, endured for so many people. And it's I can't really explain it. And, you know, by by all accounts, it was a commercial failure at the time. Mm-hmm. Let's be blunt; it didn't it didn't sell in the kind of quantities that you know a major record label would expect. But somehow, it's kind of hung on in there, and people have kept the name alive and kept talking about it and kept listening. And you know, I suppose twenty six years on now, we're about to reissue it, and demand you know and and the interest in it you know has been phenomenal. So it's 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 really. It's, it's a really heartening thing for us as a band to see that because, you know, we'd no expectation that that would be how things would pan out. I, I think it's fair to say, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Paul, but there's no band out there quite like Whipping Boy and Whipping Boy are quite like no other band. And I mean, for me, one of the takes that I have on it, one of the reasons why this album is so close to so many music music fans' hearts is that it sounded completely and utterly different to anything that was released in that mid nineties period. And I mean, just looking back at the at the videos on YouTube, there's a great one on the on the Kenny Live show. Do you remember this one? And Kenny's there and he's got the the classic you know nineties suit, you know that, <laughs> and he says, "Ladies and gentlemen, the Whipping Boy." And 
on you come and you know the lyrics yeah you know it's it's twinkle and you, you have that intro and then the band kicks in and then fergal's lyrics kick in i mean i'd say there was nothing on kenny live like that before or after yeah, and there was around the same time we were on the Late Late Show as well. And one of the things when you watch that video back is the audience look vaguely terrified. Fergal <laughs> walks out onto the floor and eyeballs a couple of people in the front row. And you can see people, they're almost scrambling to try and get further back to a back row It's without actually doing it. It's Yeah, I, th- I think it was quite a dark album. Um, I suppose was always an unsettling element to us as a band live. Um, it was just something that was there right from the very beginning, you know, before Heartworm was even, you know, conceived as a, a band starting out. There was that energy and that kind of, that I don't, it's hard to describe, but Fergal as a frontman had a way of really unsettling an audience and making them feel uncomfortable in a, in a way that was both thrilling and scary. It's hard, if that makes sense. Um, and I suppose, you know, on, on shows like the Late Late Show and the Pat Kenny Show, it did stand out. That kind of music it was it was, it was quite brutal, quite forceful. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if that's a reason why it's endured, but I do think it had a unique quality to it for for the time. Um, Britpop was all the rage in the UK at the time as well. And that, that's been cited by some as one of the reasons why maybe it wasn't as successful because it really didn't fit in with the Britpop sound and the Britpop ethos, the kind of whole laddish culture. We weren't a band that fell into that in any way. So, uh, yeah, it's, but it's, it, it is still hard to explain why it has endured. And I don't think it's dated like some of the music from that era has where you can really pin it down and say, yeah, that, that came from Britpop or that was from the baggy era or that was grunge. It straddles a few different areas, I think. Definitely. And, you know, when you think of the other bands in that Britpop uh, kind of movement, I suppose you'd call it, you think of influences on, on their music, like, you know, the Beatles, the Kinks, the Small Faces, those kind of things. When I listen to your music and this album, I hear bands coming through, you know, in terms of your influences, such as maybe I hear hear elements of the Pixies, maybe Sonic Youth, maybe Dinosaur Jr., um, Pavement. Were they the kind of bands you were listening to around this period? Yeah, to be honest, a lot of the bands you've cited there would have been bands we listened to um, when we were starting off. So early Sonic Youth was a huge influence, influence on us. Uh, bands like Big Black, uh, Pixies, early Pixies, they were all real big influence. But by the time we got to Heartworm, to be honest, we were still listening to music. But we didn't feel it was, uh, you know, the music we were making was as influenced by those bands that we were probably we probably were a little bit kind of generic for our first few records. We were kind of copying bands. Whereas when we got to Heartworm, I think we found our voice as mm. as a band, you know, as musicians, we kind of had worked our way and stumbled our way to a point where we were just, we were kind of making music that sounded like Whipping Boy rather than sounding like all of the influences that we had um, that we kind of uh, consumed at the beginning because we and when we started out we were just we just were glad to pick up guitars and get into a room and make a noise that was that, that was thrilling for us and you know we we did eight bands like Sonic Youth to a large degree and um, I remember one great review of Submarine that said boy boy Submarine and get Sister and Evolve free which I thought <laughs> was very good but um 
Yeah, I think we by by that stage, by the stage of Heartworm, we'd we'd shed a lot of those influences and found a, some kind of a voice of our own. On, on on each episode of our show, we ask our guests um to pick three songs on the album that kind of mean the most to them or or stand out to them off the top of their head. I know you could pick maybe a different three songs on, on any other given day, but are there kind of could you give us um kind of one by one? an insight into three songs off the album that that stand out to you? Yeah, sure. I suppose the song that I think is really defines us as a band would have been We Don't Need Nobody Else. Um, it was written, written at a time when I suppose the band were at a really low ebb. We'd released Submarine. We were back on the circuit playing the same shows around Ireland and in Dublin, and things seemed to have stagnated. And I suppose at that point, we were questioning whether there was a future for the band. And I think We Don't Need Nobody Else was one of the four songs that we wrote in, the, in, in that post-submarine period where we felt we were onto something. And I think there's a certain defiance about the, the chorus, that line, We Don't Need Nobody Else. I mean, the song's about a lot of things, touches on a lot of things. But that line, for me, it was kind of our anthem in that, you know, we were saying as a band, that's all we need. We need, we get back together, we start from scratch and we go again. So mm. that would be one. I always liked Morning Rise. I think the string arrangements on Morning Rise, uh, it show, showcased another side, a more tender side to the band. And mm. um, Miles, um, Miles was a really talented in terms of arranging strings on, and like he had a big role to play in those in that song, so that's one I I really like as well. And I think when we were young, is a song that you know Fergal wrote most of the lyrics, but that was one song where we collectively wrote that together, and we wrote it on the basis of I don't know if you've heard the uh, the Phil Linnett version we have of uh, when we of when we were young. It's basically we were asked to do uh, a Phil Linnett memorial gig, and we were so bad at doing cover versions. We said, let's write a piece of music and use one of Phil its poems. So he has a poem called Shades of a Blue Orphanage. Mm. And it's it's just this brilliant piece of writing about, you know, growing up and, you know, some of the, the people and places from his childhood. So we, we put that to the music, played the gig, and then we said, that music is too good for us to, to throw out. Let's write a song like Shades of a Blue Orphanage, but put our own lyrics on it. And it's it's... You know, it's a collective. We all chipped in with some of the lines there. So they they would probably be the three songs I would choose from Heartworm. I, I think they're in, incredible choices. And funny, when, when I think of Morning Rise, right, I actually, and, and this is just my opinion, it could be completely wrong, but it, it stands out to me as one of the lesser um, guitar-driven songs, if you know what I mean, because it's kind of an acoustic guitar. Um, I think it's effectively playing kind of chords throughout rather Absolutely, than any, yeah. And 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 the fact that you've picked that kind of brings home to me something I think about your guitar playing, which is that as looking at you as a guitarist, I always think that you're wonderful at serving the songs. You you don't seem to kind of show off like some guitarists, but at the same time, your riffs are absolutely wonderful. And um, completely kind of intertwine with, with with the rest of the band and Fergal's voice um, to produce something magical. And I think when we were young is is a great example of that, where you have you know your relatively clean guitar for the verse. I suppose a kind of uh, you know quiet, loud dynamics in the song, but then the kind of st- staccato guitar playing um, for for the for the chorus. I I I think you're a, a, a remarkable um, guitarist in that regard. 
Thanks a million. Um, I suppose I think you're right in one respect there. You know, I was never a showy guitarist. There was two reasons why. One, I probably couldn't play as well as some of those guitarists that can show off. But but two, I did always think that everything we did as a band musically was there to serve the song. And, you know, like things like guitar solos didn't interest me. All the people I loved as guitarists growing up weren't showy guitarists. Like I'm thinking of people like Will Sargent of Echo and the Bunny Man, really elegant guitar lines that, you know, they didn't they didn't overwhelm a song. They didn't take over a song. They were just there and they bridged the gap so nicely between verse and chorus. So they were, he, he would be a prime example of a guitarist that I love. And I suppose, you know, as a guitarist, that's that's all I wanted to do was to use textures and sounds to make the song sound as good as possible. It, it's a remarkable choices, uh, incredible choices, as Dan said. Um, I really love um, when we were, I mean, I think that that the guitar sound in it, it's like a victory march for me. It's like a victory song, you know, the the, the introduction to it. Um, and the lyrics are just incredible and quite wistful as well. And and maybe there's that melancholy line in it, you know, what might have been, what might have been. It's almost a little bit, it, Paul, it's about the band almost, what might have been, because, you know, you get, you, this is a sort of record where the fans form this relationship with the band and be kind of become a kind of an extension of it. So people start reading into all these things. I always love we don't we, we don't need anybody else as well. And one of the reasons for that is, yes, you can see how it could be, it's about the band, but also the bit about Bono. Um, I mean, years before anyone had a go at Bono, you, had, <laughs> you guys had a go at Bono. And I mean, at the time, I mean, people, I mean, I remember it very, very well. There was a bit of a taboo in that, you know, they built portholes for Bono because so you could gaze out across the bay and sing about mountains and hey, you are what you own in this world. I mean, you weren't exactly playing for popularity in 1995 in a way, were you? Well, that that story, I think the story behind that, you know, we weren't actually having a pop at YouTube. That's based on an actual experience. Fergal managed... And we, we still haven't worked out how to get into Bono's house when Bono wasn't there. And a friend of the, a friend of, you know, one of the road crew of uh, U2 was a friend of Fergus and he got him in. And the, the reason that line came about was Fergus was in the toilet and he, he, he realized that they'd built the windows really low the port and they were porthole type windows. So that's where that came from. But we weren't really having a pop at them. Um, and, and people have interpreted as that. But um, I have a lot of respect for you two. Yeah. You know, now, and, and as, as a kid, they were a band I loved. Like as I was growing up, I was at Croke Park yep. to see them. So, yeah. you know, I, you know, I have huge respect for them. And they paved the way for so many bands, um, you know, that came after them. But uh, yeah, it's just a funny story. And, and Fergal, it had a really good way, a really eloquent way of putting those kind of little observations into a song. And uh, yeah, it's it's a line that's definitely, definitely piqued people's interest. All right. It's, it, that myself and Dan are in the same boat as you when it comes to Bono and, and we're willing to, you know, nail our colours to the mast on, on that one any day of the week. But just one of the other things you didn't mention it in your in your top three but for me the natural is just a, a stunning piece uh, of music and Fergal's speaking voice in it and it's the same way when you listen to the interviews of a speaking voice his speaking voice alone is terrific never mind his singing voice uh, but the lyrics on that one I mean again they're so you know it touches on mental health and you know 26 years on almost mental health is a you know it's a common topic of conversation still not enough but it's it's talked about a lot more it's certainly you you didn't hear lyrics like that committed to record in the mid 90s no and i i mean 
my reaction when the first time Fergal walked into the rehearsal room and, you know, we'd been playing around with this piece of music and he just stood up and in this almost one take monologue went through that. We, at the end of it, we were just stunned and we never tried to second guess or, or dig too deep with Fergal's lyrics. You know, some of them are based on personal experience. Some of them would have been based on observations and things that are going on in our, that were going on in our lives at the time, like songs like Personality, um, again one that was kind of collectively written, name check. Some of the people and places that we were hanging out at the time, you know, and, and people we were with at the time. But a natural was one of those, yeah, moments for the band where we just thought, well, wow, that's that's something special. And yeah, it's it's I, f- I actually forgot that when you asked about the three songs. That would definitely be up there. It's one that I, I've, I've, you know, it's very close to my heart as well. And it's, yeah, it, I suppose his spoken voice, he's got such a rich tone. In a similar way, like Nick Cave and, so, you know, Lou Reed had that thing where, you know, the voice alone was enough to command and make you listen. And I think Fergal had that. Um, it, was, it was one of his really definable qualities, I think, about him. A, a fantastic voice and so kind of quintessentially Dublin as well. You know, you, you, he sings from the place you were in as opposed to kind of trying to sound like an American band or anything like that. It, it, it's incredible. And um, we one of the things we also do on the show is do a quick fire round of questions, right? Now, some of them are completely daft, maybe, um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how you get on, right? Okay. So I'm going I'm to throw uh, questions at you. And you I want you to kind of think, um, as fast as you can. Um, uh, now the answers can be as long as you want. Um, we, we have as as much time as as you can give us. Okay. Um, but I'll just throw them at you, right? So first of all, Blur or Oasis? Oasis. Okay. Cork or Kerry? Uh, Cork. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Okay. Spice Girls or All Saints? Yeah, Spice Girls. <laughs> okay. Why? We met we met the Spice Girls at an Irma Awards years ago, um, when they were like just starting out, and we were introduced. So, obviously, that that little memory, I'm going to go for Spice Girls every time. Hey, these are the stories we're here for, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, night in or night out? Uh, at my age, it's night in nearly all the time. <laughs> GAA or soccer? Uh, soccer. Yeah, Big. Yeah. A lot of big GAA house in terms of the kids play GAA, and um, but I'm big big soccer fan. Yeah, you must be celebrating Bo's recent win. I certainly was. I was there for the for the all of the European games. Fantastic night. Um, they're doing really well. You know, in Europe, it's just it's been brilliant, brilliant run. Have you got any hidden talents? Have I got any hidden talents? Um, I suppose. <laughs> I, yeah, I can. I, I think I can write reasonably well, reasonably well. And, and why do you hide that talent? Because nobody's interested in anything <laughs> I write. <laughs> uh, favorite album of all time, apart from Heartworm. Favorite album of all time. Jeez, that's a tough one. Um, I would probably go with the Velvet Underground's first album. I just think it's. Not just I don't probably not the best songs, but the biggest impact for as as an album. It's just it's one of those seminal albums that just again sounds really different and was confrontational. The lyrics, everything about it, I love. Favorite dinner. 
favorite dinner. Um, geez, I remember when I'd be asked that back in the the eighties. Chips would always feature, but I better not say say that now. I I like uh, salmon in a creamy sauce and pasta. How's that? Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And the final one of these kind of quick round questions is your biggest regret. My biggest regret. Um, do I have any really big regrets? I suppose one regret we could I could put forward is we 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 got to play with Lou Reed, but in playing with Lou Reed at the European Tour, we pulled out of an American tour, which was to be our first American tour, mm. and it was definitely a bad move for the band. America, the, Amer- the American label went cold on us immediately after that. This was right at the beginning, and it was they had got this lined up. We were touring with a band called Stabbing Westward, who were on Sony at the time, and we'd agreed to do it. But then we got offered Lou Reed in Europe, and that was it. American label didn't want to know. So, a bit of a regret there. But man, how can you turn down Lou Reed at the same exactly. time? Exactly. Yeah, and exactly. And when you say it was it a regret, I, I actually don't regret doing the Lou Reed tour, but it's definitely one that probably impacted how things went with the band so and, and what was it like you know kind of emotionally for you as a as a young man touring with one of your idols it was it was unbelievable it was a dream come true come true and i've said this before like we'd heard all the stories about lou reed being grumpy being very difficult to work with and we were expecting you know we you know we heard he ran a tight ship everything no alcohol nothing the first gig was in London and we came off stage after playing, walked up to the dressing room and Lou and his band were outside the dressing room and Lou introduced himself and the band to every one of us. And we were like, couldn't believe this. No no headline band had ever even spoken to us before this. And here's their idol, um, you know, there to greet us. And the funny thing is, we we told them this later in the tour. We got to play with Sterling Morrison and Mo Tucker in the Bag It In years before that. So we, it was the tour that three of the four original members of the Velvet Underground. We never got John Cale though, unfortunately. <laughs> Amazing. It, it's it, some of the comments that we got when we were, um, you know, doing the on the build up to the show. We got lots of comments from lots of fans, and you know, so much love for the band and the album. Um, Somebody was saying, we, we, you know, a, a guy called Tony contacted us to say that he was at that the Lou Reed Whip and Bike gig in the Point in Dublin. That's right. Uh, yeah. I think he said ninety five, uh, Paul. Yeah, it could have been ninety five or ninety six. Yeah, yeah. And and he said he said hands down, Whip and Boy were way better. Um, so it's just a, it's a, it's funny the memories that people have and, and what they get in touch with you and what stands out so many years on um, from that. I wanted to just to say to you, one of the things was we got so much and thanks to everyone for their comments and for, you know, for everyone who's, who's, who's contacted us about this album in particular. One comment from Hannah was, Paul, that the she loved this album and still listened to it 25 years on but found it difficult because of the male anger in some of the lyrics. Is that something that would resonate with you or have you heard that before? I, I Well, we, we would have been asked back back in, you know, 95 when the album came out. Obviously, we don't need nobody else on the, the line and that song. You know, we would have been asked about that. Um, I, it doesn't, re- you know, I don't see it. I, I, if you think about any art form, if you think about music, you think about literature, um, you think about, you know, 
an artist, you don't necessarily, the artist doesn't necessarily have to be, t- I suppose, recounting the experience as it happened to them. There, you know, it could be observations. It could be, you know, something that they're, they're, I suppose, just experiences that they've come across. I mean, in terms of domestic violence, I think that line, domestic violence is a massive issue now. But back then, it was very much an issue that nobody talked about. Yeah. So when, you know, even a line like that came, in, in a song, it drew attention and people were a little bit taken aback by it. But I, as, a, as, a, a, as a child, I grew up in an area where dom- domestic violence, I witnessed it. I witnessed it, I witnessed it at home. And it's, it's something when, when Fergal put that line in, I just thought it was important that it stayed in because it's, it's something that we had to confront. It's something we had to talk about. And, you know, unfortunately, it hasn't got any, it hasn't gone away. And you see that horrific case this week with that young girl. I mean, it's just, it's just horrific, really yeah. beyond words. Um, it, is, it is an issue. I, I don't think at the time, I didn't get any sense that was something that we were dealing with as a band or Fergal was dealing with, you know, we were just writing songs about experiences, personal experiences and, and, and things we observed and saw happening around us. So, you know, that's, that's the only thing I can really say to that. It's, it, it's interesting. You should, you, 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 I mean, when you cast your mind back to that period, Paul, you, you will remember, I don't know if you remember the family, it was a, a Roddy Doyle TV show that came out a few years before that on RTE, which dealt with domestic violence, which I think would have been, one of the, the first sort of big TV shows that would have dealt with that. You had Roddy Doyle's book, of course, and um, the woman who walked into doors, which yeah. again was heavily about that. And then you had, you had this, and again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, you couldn't imagine another band committing those sort of uh, lyrics to record. And I think that's the great testament to Whippin' Boy for me is that they did something so brave and they didn't do something. You, you didn't do something simply to get a claim. I mean, you go to any secondhand record store now, you're going to see tons of ocean color scene records. I mean, <laughs> there was loads of bands that sold more than you, as you said in the beginning. But what you did was create an album that's authentic and formed this emotional connection. And I suppose one of the things I wanted to ask you about was what do you see as the legacy of the record? Because, I mean, again, somebody got in touch with us on social media and said when they hear Fontaine's DC, they think Whippin' Boy. I mean, what do you think the legacy of Heartworm is? It's it's difficult for me to say. You know, people have mentioned bands like Fontaine's DC and Mortar Capital and, and have said, so, said they can draw a direct lineage back to Whipping Boy. They can see that the influence there. I don't know if those guys were influenced, but they're good bands in their own right. They, you know, really good bands. Um, I suppose I'd like to think that Heartworm was an album where, that we, we were, you know, it was an honest album. We wrote an album that was true to ourselves. We didn't go and sign to a major label and then try and tone down what we were about, which I think is something that you see happen. And it happened to a lot of my favorite bands as well. They they signed to a major label and the next record they put out is this toned down, radio friendly, I suppose, anodyne sounding record. I don't think we did that. I think Heartworm was probably more ferocious. It was probably more honest than anything we put down before in terms of recorded output. So I think the, if there's any legacy is that we recorded an album that we, you know, it was true to who we were and what we were about. 
it didn't succeed, but in another way, it did succeed in that people are still talking about it. People still cite it as an album that means a lot to them. Do you play much guitar yourself these days, Paul? I don't. I don't these days now, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I did go through a period after the band split up where I didn't want to even look at a guitar. It was, it was, it was a very difficult time to, to for something that had, I suppose, been meant so much to us. And it's not just to me. I know how much the band meant to the, the rest of the guys. I mean, it was, it was, it was difficult, and we all had to deal with it in our own way. Um, and I did go through a spell after that where I was felt felt a bit lost when the band split because you don't just lose the three guys that are in the band the whole network of people that have you've lived with for the guts of you know 12 13 years they just all disappear so I did find it difficult and I, I never really got back into guitar um, or wanted to play with another band Whitten Boy were more you know my bands they were the only band I ever wanted to, to be with and you know it, it was never a question I'd look to play with anyone else well, Paul, the, the album has been reissued, and so it, it is it is back out there again. Um, fans re- fans rediscovering it, um, maybe discovering it for the first time. I have a feeling that in the same way as you know, um, albums like Nevermind and Nirvana and other other albums that we've covered here in the Big Album Show, that generation after generation find them and discover something new. Um, I I think that's what's going to happen with this album. Um, have you any any thoughts as the album uh, is reissued um, and as orders are flying in for the reissued Heartworm? Um, any thoughts now of where this uh, record goes from here? Um, I'm just delighted people get have got the opportunity again to, to to get a copy of it because it has been off the shelves for a long time. I mean, that was the real goal with getting it out there. And, and I was always surprised that Columbia or Sony didn't try and reissue it because they would have seen the interest was there 10 years, 15 years, but they, they, they didn't seem to have an interest in putting it out. So for me, I'm really happy that we're doing it with Needle Mythology. They put together really nice packages. They're, they're very meticulous. And we could have rushed it out for the anniversary and just put you know, the album, bog standard album out, but they were very insistent that they wanted to do it right. So it's got some really good bonus material, liner notes from Colum, Colum O'Callaghan. He's written a really, really wonderful essay that goes with the album. And I think fans, when they get it, they will be, you know, they'll be very happy because it's, 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 it's remastered, but it hasn't lost any of the essence of the original Heartworm. I, I listened to the two back to back. I've got the, the test pressings and I'm always a little bit skeptical about the whole remastering process, you know, I, I'm not sure how much it ever adds. So I was kind of glad it hasn't changed it dramatically because, mm. you know, I've heard of botched remastering jobs where, it, you know, the album sounds much weaker, but it certainly doesn't. It sounds sounds like the, the album we released back in 95. Can you imagine the reaction from the fans if they felt this album uh, had been changed or transformed in a negative way? It wouldn't <laughs> be good. Um, no, it certainly wouldn't. <laughs> Paul, it's, we wish you all the very, very best uh, as the album is reissued 26 years on. Um, what a remarkable record. What a remarkable group. Um, we'll, we, we, we hope um, that you've uh, enjoyed coming on the show and to discuss Heartworm. Um, 
if anybody has any questions or has any comments, uh, please get in touch with us at the Big Album Show. We'd love to hear from you. We always do. Um, just tag us and um, please remember to listen back to our other pods if you enjoyed this one. But for me, Paul. And me, Dan. It's been a pleasure. And thanks again, Paul. And very, very best of luck. Thanks a million, guys. Thank you. You're listening to The Big Album Show with Paul and Dan. Please remember to subscribe, hit like, and remember to follow us on our social media platforms at The Big Album Show. (laughs) 